You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. This week I asked a question, um, what great things in life require waiting? I stuck that out there on social media and I got some really good answers, um, lots of different kind of answers. My friend Shannon that I grew up with in Texas, um, he kind of summed it up while also exposing that he is without a doubt from Texas. He said the three B's, babies, bread, and brisket. So... There are a lot of great things in life that require waiting. Um, you know, I personally do not think that you should microwave bacon. That happens in our house every once in a while. But I think you should have to like sit there and just watch it cook. It's an experience. Truly great things in life um, are not microwavable. In fact, I would suggest I'll give you the whole day to go home and think about something life-changing that's ever come out of your microwave. Go ahead, come back to me if you find something. Truly great things in life are not microwavable, and that includes us. See, we, we often want to cook things and get things going in our life a little faster than what is required. Um, there are often times that we think that we know more than we know, that we understand more than we understand um, you know, going back to the, the waiting thing, there are times that I want the brownies to be done, but they're just not, right? And if you pull them out too early, you've learned you won't even be able to get them out of the pan. Now, don't leave them in there too long either, because who wants those? But you can't rush certain things along. There are many things in life that we think that we're prepared for, um, only to step out too quick and realize maybe not. Um, a lot of times right now, we're in the fall season. Um, there are things that get planted in the fall that they actually require the dormancy of the winter in order to be able to burst forth and grow in the spring. Life involves this process of preparing, and our favorite word, waiting. Preparing and waiting. Preparing and waiting. Sanctification is one of these big bible words that scares us when we first hear it. But sanctification is the process of being refined by God, being changed by God. And it's a lifelong process that essentially, when you understand the word refinement or refining, you understand it's a process from walking through one fire into the next. To refine is to turn up the heat to burn away what doesn't need to be left so that what is valuable remains. So the refining process is lifelong and it's often painful. But here's the thing, the fire and the trial, this is not only where our faith is tested, James says it's where it's perfected. We're going to keep looking at the life of Joseph this morning, but before we do, I would like to start this morning by reading James chapter 1 with you, the first couple of verses. James says this in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. We could just do a whole sermon right there, friends. Consider it a great thing when you walk through trials of many kinds. 
Why? Well, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It, it produces endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The fire, the trial, this is where not only our faith is tested, but where it's perfected. Moreover, the preparing and the waiting, this is where we actually discover the grace and the greatness and the magnificence of God. We're going to see that a little bit more this morning in the life of Joseph. So if you will turn with me to Genesis chapter 40, that's where we will be. Let's recap again. Joseph uh, is sold into slavery by his brothers. He's taken to Egypt and sold to a man named Potiphar, who is captain over the guard in Egypt. And so he goes from being a slave to being the overseer of Potiphar's whole house. He's very trustworthy. Well, so at some point, Potiphar's wife takes notice of Joseph, and she begins to chase and lust after him. Joseph has nothing to do with this because he doesn't want to abuse Pharaoh's trust. Moreover, he doesn't want to sin against God. And so out of her own lust and her wrath, she sets Joseph up and Joseph winds up in prison. Now again, he sold as a slave to Potiphar, but winds up being overseer over the house. Gets put in prison. He's such a trustworthy prisoner. He gets put over all of the other prisoners. And so the last thing we saw in Genesis 39 was the Lord was with Joseph. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So that leads us to Genesis chapter 40. Look with me in verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against him. Pharaoh was angry with the two officers and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. It's been at least 10 years since Joseph was sold into slavery. We know from looking backward and forward that at this moment, Joseph is right at about 28 years old. And now if you're an idealist or an optimist, you could read this story up to this point. You could go, hey, but let's look at the bright side. Bad stuff will happen to Joseph, but then something kind of good comes out of it, right? Sold into slavery, but then put over the house. Put in prison, but then put over all the prisoners. Okay, great, sure. But let's talk about this in realistic terms. Technically, what Joseph is, is he's a servant to all the king's felons. Now, I don't mean servant now like he's waiting on them hand and foot, but he's the one overseeing all the biggest and best criminals under the king's watch. So I share that to say this. Don't start getting the idea that Joseph's living the dream job here. Okay? He's in prison. Verse 5. So one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker... They each had their own dream, and each dream had its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked the cupbearer and the baker, Why are your faces downcast today? What's the matter with you guys? 
And they said to him, we've had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me what you dreamed. Now, okay, great question here. What's the big deal? So two grown men had a couple of dreams, okay? We have dreams all the time too. I mean, are they like wanting some milk in a blanket, some kind of consoling? What's the big deal about this? Well, the big deal is that Egyptians placed an enormously high value on dreams. They actually believed that when they slept, they entered another realm. Like, I'm physically still here, but mentally, emotionally, I'm somewhere else. And so a dream to them was as if they were bringing back a message from somewhere else. So therefore, you really needed someone to share with you what your dream meant. Moreover, if you had a pair of dreams, like Joseph had 10 years before this, to the Egyptians, a pair of dreams was significant because this meant most certainly there was going to be fulfillment of these dreams. And while neither of these men had two dreams, they had dreams that were very, very similar. So they wake up, they realize we both had dreams, they're kind of creepy, we don't have anybody around here to tell us what in the world these dreams mean, and so they're in distress. Their dreams are going to reveal a couple of very significant and important things. First of all, their dreams are going to reveal what is actually going to happen to them. But then indirectly, their dreams are going to reveal what's already been happening to Joseph. So let's take a look. Again, remember verse 8. What's the matter with you guys? We've had these dreams. There's no one to interpret them. And Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell me what it is that you dreamed. Verse 9, the cupbearer tells Joseph, he says, Okay, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were these three branches. Picture this in your mind, folks. A vine, three branches, and out of there soon it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup back in his hands. Joseph kind of shakes his head, says, okay, I got this. Here's the interpretation of your dream. The three branches are three days. In just three days, your head, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as you formerly did when you were his cupbearer. And now I want you to take note of something right here that happens very significant. For the first time that we know of, and the last time that we know of, Joseph is about to cry out for help. He interprets the dream, and now he says, Only remember me when it's well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of here. Hey man, I just interpreted your dream and now I need a favor from you. Um, I don't really care if you ever come back and visit. If you send money, send an autograph from Pharaoh. I don't need any of that. Here's what I need from you. Remember me. And when you get back in his good graces and everything seems to be well, mention me and get me out of here. 
For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that I should be in the pit. So he interprets this dream. He cries out to this guy, do something on my behalf, right? And this exchange is going on. Well, remember the baker's here as well. He's had a dream too. And he's hearing all of this. Hey, the cupbearer's dream, that sounded pretty good. So now the cupbearer, excuse me, the baker is like, okay, okay, me, me next, do me. The chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable. So he says to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. This is weird. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked foods for Pharaoh. Great, great pastries, right? However, the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said to him, Okay, here's the interpretation of your dream. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh is also going to lift up your head from you. He's going to take your head. And you're going to be hanged on a tree. And the birds are going to come and eat your cold, dead carcass. That was the Brian Mayfield version. And this is probably the point where the chief baker is like, um, does anybody else in here interpret dreams? Anybody? Because mine doesn't sound like the cupbearers. Let's get a swap or something. But look what happens. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the cupbearer and the head of the baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. As I said a moment ago, these guys, their dreams are going to reveal a couple of important things. The first one, what was actually about to happen to them. And I think it's probably important to be a little bit more specific. Yes, their dreams, but more importantly, Joseph's interpretation of their dreams are fulfilled just as he described them. So that's the first thing of significance. But the second thing that these dreams reveal, actually everything surrounding their dreams indirectly begin to reveal to us what's already happening to Joseph. These guys' lives, the, the cupbearer, the baker, they were changed in an instant. You could argue, well... It was actually three days. Sure, okay, fine. But in the grand scheme of things, it was very quick. In three days, you're getting out of here. You, you're going to be restored. You, you're going to die. Happened just like Joseph said. But see, in the grand scheme of things, what we have to also see is that Joseph was very slowly, slowly, slowly being transformed. God was very slowly transforming Joseph's life. Remember, Joseph was an arrogant, insensitive 17-year-old who very evidently never gave a whole lot of thought to how his father's affection for him might affect his brothers. Didn't give a whole lot of thought at all to how his father's gift 
to him might make his brothers feel. Moreover, didn't give any thought to how the dreams that he had, where my brothers are going to bow down in front of me, how it might make them feel or what it might do to them to just kind of toss that out to them nonchalantly. You guys are going to bow down in front of me one day. It's going to be great. But see, now Joseph is greatly concerned about the welfare of two inmates. Joseph could very easily be at a point in his life where he says, you know what, I don't, I don't belong in this place, so I don't care about you, much less your dumb dreams. The scripture says, he saw that they were troubled. Joseph took notice of their distress and their burden. You know, because of the fact that I have a father who suffered a traumatic brain injury, walked through a very, very long, slow process, only to contract a very, very vicious cancer that he fought for two and a half years that eventually took his life, I now have compassion that I did not have before for people who have to endure walking through suffering with their loved ones. I didn't have that. It wasn't that I didn't want it. But I will guarantee you, I didn't want what it took to get it. Because I, not somebody I know, me, Brian Mayfield, have personally now dealt with anxiety and depression. I have empathy for people around me who battle this. Because I understand that things are going on sometimes and you go, I don't understand. Empathy and sensitivity are a gift from the Lord. And, and the problem with the gift is the road we have to walk to get those gifts. <laughs> if we had that road and road anywhere else, I would be like, let's go down road anywhere else. I can't really see where it's going, but it, it must be better than that one. Empathy and sensitivity are a gift from the Lord. Uh, one of my favorite U2 songs begins with these lyrics. The more you see, the less you know. The less you find out as you go. I knew much more then than I do now. What's he saying He's saying that I wake up every day and I learn and discover that I have a whole lot more to learn and discover than I thought I did. Experience humiliates arrogance. I can't tell you how many times I've had one of those moments where I've wanted to put my head down and go, oh, Lord have mercy. I thought I knew what I was talking about. And then I got a little older and I walked through a few more things and went, I did not know what I was talking about. I didn't know what I was thinking. I didn't know what I was saying. Experience humiliates arrogance. Empathy, what empathy does is it rebukes pride and it begins to birth compassion in us. And so you, you begin to understand that 
this experience that begins to laugh at arrogance and this empathy that begins to rebuke pride and begins to actually desire compassion, that's what was happening to Joseph. But it was only happening to Joseph because God was walking him down a path that he would never have chosen for himself. He was becoming a great leader. Joseph was unaware that he was becoming a great leader, but he was, whether he could see it or not. But now understand with me here, this will never happen on our microwavable timetable. It doesn't work that way. It is only in God's way and only in God's time. The the days, weeks, years of the preparing and the waiting. Yes, God was emptying Joseph of of pride and arrogance and insensitivity, but he was also filling him with faith and courage and compassion. And I don't want to undersell this. Uh, These 10, 11 years of Joseph's life had to have been very, very taxing. You know, every time a president gets, gets done with office, we look at them and we go, it can have been eight years. They look 20 years older. You know, I imagine that if we found Joseph at this point in prison, you might look at him and go, that dude is not 28. He's been through some stuff. In the only moment that we're aware of, let's go back and notice this again. In the only moment that we're aware of, throughout this whole process of Joseph's life, He cries out for help. I don't think it's a stretch to say that Joseph still very much believed that those dreams God had given him, God was going to fulfill them. If Joseph didn't believe that, he could have cared less, could not have cared less about interpreting these other men's dreams. He would have said, dreams, those are hogwash. I had two dreams once. You know where it got me? But that's not the response that we see here. Hey, only God can interpret dreams. Tell me what you dreamed. But understand what's happening in this moment. Joseph, in this moment, has every reason. It's like hope. If it had gone dormant, boom, it's just sprung to life again. Why? This has to be significant Here are these two men in front of me. They've both had dreams. I've interpreted their dreams. And one of them in three days is going to be back in front of Pharaoh in his good graces. And all that I've asked of this guy is that in that moment when he knows I'm back in Pharaoh's good graces and everything is just right, remember me. Get me out of here. Yet, The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You know what's interesting is I think that maybe for a moment, Joseph might have been tempted to put his faith in the cupbearer. Finally, I found my deliverer. I'm just going to say this to you this morning. The instant that you and I start ever believing we will find our hope in anything other than God himself, God will make sure that we understand correctly 
And here in this moment, I, w- I want you to think about it with me. Can you imagine Joseph when the cupbearer is leaving? Hey, cupbearer, remember me, Joseph, with a J. I- I'll be here. I'm not going anywhere. I interpreted this, remember? I told you. And the next day, hope came up with the sun, didn't it? Here comes the sun. I'm getting out today. And then the sun went back down. Maybe there was like paperwork to fill out, had to cut through some tape. You know, tomorrow, tomorrow is the day. And then the sun came up and then the sun went down. And you have to know that after a certain number of sunrises and sunsets, eventually there's a temptation there to just begin to go, forget it. What the heck do you want from me, God? None of you, none of us this morning are in the prison. But some of us very well may feel like, but I know the pit. I've been in the pit. And you know, I read David in Psalm 40 and David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined, he turned and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the mud and the mire and the clay. And he set my feet on a rock and he made my footsteps firm. And we read that and we're like, I am all about that. But if I'm being honest with you, I think God only heard me say the first thing. I waited patiently on the Lord. And God, I'm still here. I'm waiting patiently, but I'm going to need you to hear me and pick me up and get me out of here. And very much like Joseph, in the midst of those times, there's a part of us that wants to say, what do you want from me, God? And friends, what you and I need to understand is that in those moments, God actually doesn't want anything from you. He wants something for you. Now, he may very well want something from you. But even in the midst of that, it's because he always wants and has something for you. The preparing and the waiting the preparing and the waiting. I want you to think about this. God, he just keeps preparing. Joseph, he seems to just keep waiting. But when you read the gospel, and I don't mean just the gospels, but when you read and you understand the gospel and and the entirety and the whole of God's word, you begin to look at it and you go, the experience of the pain The delay, the waiting and the preparing and the preparing and the waiting, this seems to be written over the life of all of God's greats, doesn't it? Let's just go back and start with Abraham. Do you remember when Abraham and Sarah visited the fertility clinic? No, you don't, because they waited until Abram was one zero zero. For Isaac to be born. 100. The odds of any of us in this room even making it to 100 are really slim. 
And Isaac was born when Abraham was a hundred. How about Moses? Moses spends 40 years in the desert being prepared by God to go back into Egypt, face Pharaoh, get God's people, bring them out of slavery in Egypt to go to the promised land. But hey, let's stop off in the wilderness where because of our disobedience, we wind up staying for how long? 40 years of preparing and waiting. I'm going to let this whole generation of faithless die to raise up another one because when we go in, we're going in the right way. How about David? Samuel anointed David to be king when David was maybe 13, but I'm going with like 10. And what did David spend the next 10, 12, 15 years of his life doing? Running from crazy, jealous King Saul hiding in caves. What's God doing to David? Preparing. What's David doing? Running, waiting, running, waiting. Let's move to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, maybe the greatest disciple maker in the history of the world, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus is blinded, comes to salvation. We expect him, let's microwave it, right? He should go right out right now and preach the gospel. Best time. I mean, he's just experienced salvation, right? Paul goes and spends three years being prepared and readied before he ever even goes to Jerusalem to affirm his apostleship. But you know what? Whether we bring Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Daniel, Paul, any of them on the table, let's just go with the most important. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, spent 30 years preparing for three years of ministry. But see, friends, you and I sit on the side of history that we know that those three years are still changing the world. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Genesis, says this. Joseph experienced disappointment after disappointment. His brother's murderous rejection, um, Potiphar's wife, Betraying him, the withering disappointment from the forgetful cupbearer. Joseph's life teaches us the disappointments are essential to spiritual growth. Can we just circle that line? Write that part down. Disappointments are essential to spiritual growth because they demand faith and resting all hope upon God. If you haven't faced that moment, that circumstance, that situation, you will where all that you have left is to cry out to God. And on that side of it, you will not like it one ounce, but on the other side, you will praise God because you know him more. I love what Raymond Edmonds says. 
Delay never thwarts God's purposes. It only polishes his instrument. See, the waiting and the preparing, we think, oh, God's, God's plan must be out of whack. Nope, nope, it hadn't gotten off track a bit. In fact, the waiting and the preparing was part of the plan. The plan. Delay does not thwart the purposes of God. It only polishes his instrument. It only refines you and me. The question becomes, well, do I desire to be an instrument in the hand of God? Because if you do, uh, the refining and the polishing, the preparing, there will be pain involved. There will be fire involved. But it will be a beautiful and powerful thing. John Calvin says, Joseph teaches us that nothing is more improper than to prescribe the time when God will help us. For he deliberately, sometimes for a long time, keeps his people in anxious suspense so that they may know for certain how to trust in God. Have you felt like, okay, yeah, anxious suspense. God's got me on that one a few times. Maybe even right now, in praying for the Lord to do something, praying for God to act. As you're going to see in the the coming weeks here, and as you know, if you've read this story before, God is going to deliver Joseph. But God is going to do it in his timing and in his way. He's not doing it in this moment. Why? Because he is still preparing Joseph for something greater than Joseph would ever aspire to on his own. And God is still transforming him from insensitive, careless young man to compassionate, courageous, godly leader. What's happening here is Joseph is undergoing the renovation of God's grace. And and that doesn't come quick or painlessly. Joseph's being emptied of himself, filled by God. He's learning to turn to God. He's learning to lean on God. But he's also learning to point others to God in the process. What's happening, friends, is that Joseph is being sanctified. But the sanctification of God is not microwavable. It has never and it will never happen on our timetable. We rush everything. Or we sit on our hands and we refuse to move. And so there's some of us today that maybe uh, things aren't going as fast as we want them to. Maybe our trust in the Lord needs to be put back in front of us. But there are some of us that maybe the Lord is saying, it's time to move. It's time to step. Delay never thwarts God's purposes. It only polishes his instrument. Friends, the preparing and the waiting, the praying, this is where faith is tested and perfected. But this is also where we discover the grace and the greatness of God.
I would like to close this morning reading with you again from James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. You know what James is saying there? Saying, don't run ahead of God. Don't rush it. Be okay right there in that moment, knowing that God is with you. Let that endurance have its full effect. Why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for the life of Joseph. Lord, we thank you for the endurance, the steadfastness. We thank you for the faith. Lord, we ask you today as your people We ask you to bring that refining. Lord, we realize that that may very well mean that you have to turn up the heat. But Lord, we come today because we desire to be instruments in the hand of our God. come today and we say, Lord, we desire to walk through the refiner's fire. Lord, we desire for you to burn away what doesn't need to be there. And Lord, maybe that means this morning you need to bring us to a place of confession and repentance over sin in our life. Maybe sin that is right now in the, in the present, it is right in our face. Or maybe it's something that we've buried and just swept under the rug and thought, yeah, I'm just going to leave that there and pretend it never happened. Lord, we ask you this morning to search us, know us, lead us to that place of desiring to walk with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you would just say, man, I'm in the pit. I would just encourage you to cry out to the Lord as David did. Father, I am waiting patiently for you. I know that you hear me. I know that you hear me. I know that you love me. And Lord, I don't know when you're going to lift me out of this, when you're going to deliver me from this, but Lord, I know that even in the midst of it, you are with me.
And Lord, I just acknowledge this morning that I know my feet are already upon a rock because they're on you. I'm asking you to put a new song of praise in my mouth, a song of praise to you. In just a moment, we're going to respond to the Lord in song. But maybe you just need to come to the steps or to the foot of the cross and pray. Please come. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, some of our pastors, our elders, our leaders are going to be in the back at the tables. They would love to talk with you, share the gospel with you, pray with you. Lord, in this moment, we give you all praise and glory and honor. We exalt you. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.